When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we begin the latest episode, I wanted to talk about something special I do every year at this time. My friends and I are raising money for Extra Life during our 24-hour livestream in December. Extra Life is a charity that supports children's hospitals across North America. In a year like 2020, this need has really been highlighted for me. We are hoping to once again reach our goal. If you would like to help us or support us, you can find out more information and donate at distractionsmedia.com forward slash charity stream. As always, if you want to watch us play games, have fun, and join our community, you can do so at twitch.tv forward slash distractionsmedia. The fun begins Saturday, December 5th at noon Eastern. That's 5 p.m. UK time. Thank you for your support and thank you for your help. back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 135, The Suffering Countryside. For the second time in the story of medieval Wales, we are moving away from leaders and rulers trying to control the narrative. We now move away from the story of Owen Glyndor, and we move back to talking about how Wales dealt with the consequence of yet another conquest by England. The English would soon find themselves in yet another series of wars which would not end until the fields of Bosworth in 1485. In myth, there are stories of brave Welsh archers which helped win the Battle of Agincourt. Maybe you've heard them, maybe many of you believe them, however many scholars have consistently pointed out that English concerns over the Welsh were not so dissipated by 1414 when the army was called out and brought over to France. They would bring with them numbers to fight for the crown, but the numbers of Welsh were certainly not to the degree that you would have a full unit of archers. While there may have been Welshmen from the marches who served their English lords in the war in France, they were very few in number on the field that day. Shakespeare has given us an interpretation of his collective rewriting of the history in the Tudor period for the benefit of the Welsh-descended monarchs. He brings up the unity and nobility of the Welsh at odds with previous English views during a strange period at the start of English imperial ambitions, showing a country unified rather than divided, something of a Tudor propaganda piece that we will discuss again next year in 2021. As one English poet put it in 1436, Beware of Wales, that it make not our children's children weep. The English themselves were still cautious, still concerned, and still unwilling to give the Welsh some sort of pass for what had happened. Fear of the Welsh was rising, 
and still something of a concern in the public mindset for many years to come. In English legal systems, the hated penal code would remain in place and be reaffirmed by English parliaments in 1431, 1433, and 1447. In fact, it would not finally be removed until 1624, well after Henry VII had won the crown, and in fact, after the Tudors had actually were no longer a part of the monarchy. Also, Welsh were as likely to be on either side of the war, as many sought fortune and fame in the One Hundred Years' War, both before and after the Glyndwr Revolt, selling their services to the highest bidder, as we have discussed previously. With many experienced Welsh troops from previous wars kicking around, there is at least some degree of exodus to France for these men. Certainly, for many, there was no way to go back to the old setting, to the old farmstead, to return to what would be considered to be a down trodden existence and i'm sure for them that was important for the surviving nobles in wales owen glindor was now an unhappy memory something that they were prepared to describe as half crazed rebels who was now not to be admired but actually to be considered kind of a problem if we were to be honest this, of course, would grow as the next generations tried to grow to prominence, but still you will see them distance themselves from the losing side, as we often see in these circumstances and situations. If you want to have the power, you don't usually float around with a group that lost. One way that they did this was to leave their culture behind altogether. Some in the gentry appealed to become Englishmen, that way they could escape the restrictions the law had set for them for being Welsh. These men may have done this for ambition, or they may have held that they simply needed to get away from what they saw as prejudice by the English. It is a hard choice to make, you would have to imagine, and those who chose to do so must have known that the cost would be great on both sides of the cultural divide, because obviously for Welshmen who stayed and remained in Wales as Welshmen, they would look at you as a traitor. The English themselves never really trusted these people and were not fond of this strategy and began to protest against this practice, which led to a brief secession of this ability by Welshmen to declare themselves English for at least about a decade. Welsh bards and poets, on the other hand, carried the nationalistic fervor forward, creating a great deal of Welsh patriotic writings, uh, mythology and legends, you know, concepts of the future that could be more glorious than the current. These documented not only current feelings, but also gave rise to a great deal of the Welsh myth that lives on today. Some created the basis of Owen as Arthur, the idea that he would come again and continue the fight. Others took up the cause, even as events in England turned to an undeclared civil war. The Welsh poets lamented for neither York nor Lancastrian, but for the loss of Welsh lives on either side. Others still contended that Cadwalder, the semi-mythical last king of Britain, was returning soon to pick up the fight to take over the Welsh uh, war against the English, the hated Saxons, or Sassnig in Welsh. This loss to England 
did not ease their desire for revenge against these Saxons or change their political opinion for those who were responsible for the failure. Others felt the despair of losing hope, some seeing the only true justice in the one to come after death. They felt the Welsh could never see a time of true freedom from English rule. Gutor Glynn wrote, Woe unto us, born into slavery. They pleaded for the English to be locked out of offices which controlled Wales, which the penal code, of course, approved of and established in law, that English people only could control higher offices in Wales. After the Glyndor Revolt, no Welshman could hold a high office in Wales at least until 1496, and no Welsh clergy could serve their people as bishop until 1461. The English were not going to allow another Glyndor in their midst. For other writers, it was seen as the actual division in Wales which was now the issue. It was a division that, for example, was perceived to have undid Llewellyn the Last, and so they called for unity. Llewis Glyn Clothi said, Bring Glamorgan and Gwyneth together. Make us one from Conwy to Mead. As historian Glenmore Williams put it very well, Poetry, at the heart of it, continued to reaffirm two essential beliefs which they resolutely refused to relinquish, that the Welsh were sprung from one of the oldest and most illustrious peoples in Europe, and as such were entitled to be honorably treated. Having been betrayed, cheated, and suppressed regularly by the English, their best hope for obtaining justice was from a leader born of their own people, and so they continued to argue this, continued to put it forward in their writings and through the legacy that they left to people who had come after them. Meanwhile, the clergy in Wales continued to hold patriotic sentiments as well, or at least some did. They would occasionally get themselves into trouble. As examples, in 1427, canon Matthew Llewellyn was accused of fostering the notions of Welsh independence. Others, like Cistercian monks in Strata, Florida, were likewise considered suspect in their views, and you can understand this, because if you're a Welsh-born clergyman, particularly ones right after the war, they would still have been amongst those in the Owen, the Glyndurian uh, bureaucracy, if we want to call it that. So they would have been in close contact with a lot of those feelings, and they themselves have felt aggrieved by the way the English church had effectively overran them, going back even as far as to the early days of Bede and the decisions made then to set up Canterbury as the head of the uh, Catholic church in Britain. All of these things created grievances that the Welsh clergy themselves were arguing for with Glyndor. So the fact that they are still purporting and pushing for this ideal doesn't come across as very surprising. Let's be fully understanding and honest about that. And the main issue for these pockets of resistance is that there was no one to coalesce around. Much of the Welsh nobility, gentry, and others of note were caught up in the English affairs, and few really felt the pull to represent Wales after Glyndor. When they did appear on our records during the War of the Roses, they were typically incidentally Welsh. Owen Tudor may have come from the Tudors of the Glyndor Revolt, 
but he would hardly be seen in the same breath as his famous relatives, particularly as having some sort of linkages to Welsh independence. The Welsh marches had seen drastic changes in who was now in charge. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. A number of the older families had either been wiped out or reduced to the point where they were no longer the main landholders in the area. And in some cases, just could not hold up after all the revolts. Uh, like in case of the Mortimers, which obviously had been pulled away and so many others. There was a lot of, of course, the revolts against Henry IV came from these areas. So so a lot of these English lords in Wales no longer held power in the way they had previously, and thus a number of new lords were coming forward and taking control of the area, ones that were loyal to Henry specifically. And because of this, a number of these new lords owed their powers to areas outside of the march. Yorkists, for example, were the power in the north. The Welsh lands that they held were not significant enough for them to really rely on them, and certainly, as we'll see, were not in any shape to be relied upon. In the southeast, for example, Newport and Gwent saw their incomes drop by 10% over the first half of the 15th century. Of course, that area was the least involved in most of the warfare, so saw a lot less of the problems that come from that. However, even with that in the Northeast, much of the economic ruin and the lands that were in tatters were 
because they were effectively from the beginning fought over consistently had most of their income destroyed and so thus we see a yearly drop in income from a thousand pounds a year to 50 pounds a year a drop of 95 percent of that income over 40 years it took ages to get that back to a position where they were actually making similar incomes to what they had made previously. For many peasant families in Wales, they found themselves in a very different set of circumstances. The combination of death and then eventually the widespread availability of land meant that a lot of family units, which had been generally larger, became much smaller. The norm, of course, in the medieval period was several extended families living around one another to reduce uh, the burden on each other to end in all reality because that's how it kind of happened. You'd have your family, they'd have their family, and then, then their children had have their family, and all of that would sort of stay in the same area and inherit pieces and portions of that land. Well, after what had happened in Wales, that wasn't as common and a lot of families ended up in what we would consider a, a nuclear family where it's just strictly the parents and their children and that like I said wasn't the norm in the medieval era so it would have been very isolating and very different and for some of those families kind of a frightening time some of course would take advantage of the general availability of land at cheap prices and labor costs which were also inexpensive to create larger and larger holdings for themselves. Squires in Wales started to rise during this period, not considered nobility or having real right to power, but still economically advantaged compared to other Welsh men and women. To put it bluntly in the medieval era, the middle class that we always think about and talk about and politically advocate towards quite often in various political situations nowadays were just considered to be the guys who had money but weren't rich enough or connected enough to become a part of the nobility. And thus they were somehow lesser in some respects. The merchant class was very much this way in the medieval period. But nonetheless, they gained a lot of housing, a lot of land holdings, and a lot of money. So while they may not have been on the level of the nobility, they still held a lot of power, and that was important. These, these middle-class landholders began to build relationships with others of like position across Wales. Now keep in mind, merchants and middle-class landholders in Wales were not like their English counterparts. They were, I would say, still poverty-stricken by comparison, but Nonetheless, they had made a good deal for themselves and set themselves up to be capable of raising funds for themselves, even if it's smaller than what their counterparts got. And they saw themselves as holding similar status, and much like the marcher lords and the Welsh nobility before that, they started to intermarry and create links between the Welsh and English landholders in Wales who at that point, we're only now starting to gain a scale of power and prosperity. As these landholders rose up the chain of wealth and status, the rest of Wales was mostly stagnant. 
being poor in post Wales was a miserable life. Your status, your ability to fend for yourself, was constantly under challenge. Only the cloth industry had actually escaped from this due to, of course, the ever-expanding demand for wool in Europe. This trade item had kept many going during this period, as sheep and their wool would be able to thrive in all parts of Wales. Like many other parts of the Welsh economy, though, all paths led back to England, specifically Bristol, Chester, and most critically of all, Shrewsbury. These were key market towns for Welsh cloth merchants to sell their wares. That, of course, means that they did not necessarily benefit as much as they could financially for the making and selling of the finished product, but were rather part of the great industrial chain of England. This meant that the English likely benefited most of all, and that these towns would grow and gain a great degree of wealth during the century because of this trade, and in fact for both Chester and especially Bristol, made it highly desirable for the merchant class to settle there. Bristol becomes the site of a great number of trade wings in what will eventually become the mercantilism of the British Empire with the slave trade and the rum trade and all of the other things that they got from the New World. It would actually become a part of this circle that would bring income into England. And so critically, having the cloth industry coming through them allowed them to build the infrastructure they needed to be able to move beyond this and move beyond just simply being a trade port for the Welsh into being a trade port for the world. And so in other ways, and unfortunately something that we'll see very common throughout Welsh history, they do a lot of the work, but basically become the tool that is used to create something else rather than themselves being able to create something separate. So in that end, it becomes a frustrating thing to see when you look at these circumstances. But nonetheless, it does show that there are some industries that are surviving. There are some industries that are growing, even in this period of great difficulty. But make no mistake, the land of Wales during this period is not in the shape of even a hundred years ago. The land that Edward I conquered and took over is in a lot worse shape at this point. Keep in mind there's been almost a hundred years of the Black Death raging through at this stage. There is, and it, just because it came once, it also comes again and again and again. Outbreaks happen throughout the next two, three hundred years because they don't know how to stop it and it just keeps happening and so every time it comes around it does more and more damage because in some respects people haven't quite overcome it or they are weakened from various other things part of the reason why the black death does such damage in europe specifically comes about in part because the wars that had been carrying on had weakened the ability of classes that were not in the nobility to fight the disease because, of course, their lands have been raided, so starvation is a big issue. Uh, the winter was particularly cold at times during that period, and that will continue to be an issue. And, of course, on top of everything else, you get crop failures and other problems which come about. And so in that midst, illness, sickness, and disease 
has a lot of place to come in and do damage and once it starts in it becomes very difficult to put an end to it and so for a lot of people this was the basis of their daily lives during this period wales doesn't really recover until after the tudors take over in part because the damage that had been done over the last well i would argue 200 years between the edwardian conquest and then the the glindor revolt much of the countryside had suffered under all of this obviously as wars are fought they do massive damage to the infrastructure to the ability of people to carry out their daily lives let alone the death issue of course that's happening as troops from both sides are basically gathering up civilians to fight in the wars or in some respects to send in quotes messages to the other side and so distrust deprivation starvation all kind of become a part of the daily life of the peasants from both the welsh and english living in wales at this time period make no mistake even though there is a minority there still is a minority of english living there and they had to suffer through this just as much as the welsh did and you can make all sorts of arguments for why the welsh and the english got put in this situation but the reality of it is the peasants living in the cities the the lower classes that were having to deal with their day-to-day -day lives were no more or less guilty of what was going on than the welsh peasants who basically had to deal with what was going on for them so while yeah there were people who definitely believed in the the glindor revolt and fought with owen there were a lot of people who just had to survive it and at this stage now they were dealing with the consequences of all that and now the great nobility of this fight for independence stares at them in the face with the reality of how do i feed myself how do i feed my family and that becomes a whole different argument and might explain why for about a hundred years we don't really hear of any Welsh uprisings, of any Welsh movements for independence that actually gain any traction. This is a period of what could be called quiet on that front. There will become Welsh involvement, but it'll be Welsh involvement with other wars, with other people's politics, rather than internal politics in Wales, something that we'll see off and on again throughout the next few hundred years wherein most of what we see of Wales comes out of not uh, internal politics or internal policy, but from external forces involving the Welsh in affairs that are of a different nature or of a imperial nature, if we want to be blunt. And of course, all of this drastically changes over the next 100 years. By the time Henry VII ascends to the throne in 1485, Christopher Columbus has already met with the King of Portugal to advocate for the funding to find the Western Passage to India and China, and after that, the world will become unrecognizable. And with that, I'd like to thank you for listening to the Welsh History Podcast this week. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or at Welsh History Pod on Twitter or on facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Thank you, everybody. Hope you are having a great uh, November. 
and uh, or whenever you're listening to this. I hope you're having a good day, and we will talk to you later. Take care, everyone. Goodbye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.